This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We are heading into the home stretch of this uh, provincial election. And boy, what a 24 hours this has been with the number of things that have happened with polling and uh, with accusations back and forth, etc. And uh, rather startling numbers. And uh, the focus, of course, is going to be on Sunday because that is the last leaders debate if you ever watched the, the first two. But this is the one that matters because a lot of people don't even start paying attention to elections until about the last two weeks. And uh, with some of the changes that have gone on, I would think there's going to be a great deal of interest in finding out what Andrea Horvath, Doug Ford, and, and Kathleen Wynne have to say on Sunday. Uh, one of the uh, moderators for that, there will be two in that, is uh, Steve Pakin, who is the co-host of The Agenda on TVO. And uh, Far Nasser, by the way, who is the other co-anchor, is going to join us a little bit later on on the show. But right now, pleased to bring our good friend Steve Pakin back to the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. How are you doing this morning, Steve? A-okay. How are you? Excellent. Listen, I, you know, you can draw the... Elections are like snowflakes. No two are alike. But have you ever, ever, in all the years you've been covering this stuff, seen one like this? This is just bizarre what's going on from day to day. Well, you're right. There are echoes of other elections in the past that I do see in this one. And, and while one never wants to categorically conclude that the governing party is out of it, it does have a feeling... Uh, of going back to 1995, when Bob Ray's government was in power, and you just had the sense going into that election campaign that it didn't matter what Bob Ray said or what he promised or what the NDP did, there was just no way they were going to get out of third place. And this election, you know, we're halfway through it already. It does have that feel, the feel that it doesn't really matter what Kathleen Wynne says or what she promises or what she has offered or what the record is. People just have tuned it out. Uh, The fact is, uh, her numbers were in the very low 20s when the campaign began. A couple of polls out today would show that they may have sunk even further than that. So in that respect, though, I see echoes of that, uh, you know, obviously with a very different uh, outcome in 1995, where the Conservatives ended up under Mike Harris with a majority government this time. And, of course, two weeks to go. But this time, it looks like the NDP could be headed that way. <laughs> no one's ready to call that yet. But, you know, it's, I'm glad you brought the 1995 example up because uh, that was another situation where Mike Harris and the PCs went from third to first. Uh, exactly and that may right. well happen this time. Exactly right. And when Mr. Harris did it, it was the first time in more than seven decades that any political leader in Ontario history had gone from third to first. And, of course, if Andrea Horvath manages to do it this time, uh, it won't quite be seven decades, but it will be since 1995. Uh and, and that, and therein lies one of the, I think, the, the subtext here, which is now becoming, I guess, the, the big story, uh, is the rise of the NDP. And it, and maybe that's the wrong verb here, Steve. Is is it because everybody is gravitating to the NBC, to the NDP platform, or is it just, well, you know what, we've got to coalesce again? There's an anti-Doug Ford movement out there too, and that's got to be a factor. Well, I, I, here's what I can tell you about that. I, I have been, you know, as I do every election campaign, I, I go and follow some of the candidates uh, that are knocking on doors just yeah, to hear what people yeah. are saying. And, Bill, I cannot remember an election where people were more conflicted. Excuse me. I, ran in, I have run into people who normally vote progressive conservative who are just beside themselves because they just don't think they can with Doug Ford as leader. He's just not their cup of tea. I have run into people who typically vote liberal who just can't do it this time because they just have lost faith with Kathleen Wynne and they think the liberals need some time out in the penalty box. I have run into people who have never under any circumstances voted NDP, but are starting to think about that. But that's, you know, for many of them, still a bridge too far. And then you see some people who think, well, gosh, since I'm not happy with any of my choices of the three main parties, maybe it's time this year to turn to the Green Party. This is what's difficult. We had a pollster named Erin Kelly uh, from um, Advanced Symbolics on our program last night, and she said that the 
undecided vote is still unusually high for this late into an election campaign. And I, and I totally buy that uh, because I'm seeing so much indecisiveness at the door. People just don't love their choices right now, um, wh- which may explain why, um, you know, when liberals are discredited and Tories are discredited, people take uh, a second look at the NDP. It's, it's a rather bizarre phenomenon because I've heard the same sort of thing on the show, of course, over the last number of weeks. Uh, and and uh, you're right, a lot of people are undecided. But what's odd about that, Steve, is a lot of them have said, I know for sure I'm not voting for so-and-so, but I don't know where I am going to vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do hear a lot of that as well. And I, I, I imagine there's going to be two results uh, because of this. Number one, um, there's either going to be a lot of people who at the end of the day are just going to hold their nose and vote however they normally vote. Uh, or the other alternative is they'll just stay home, Bill. Mm-hmm. And that would that would really be a shame because, of course, the turnout in the last election was only 51 percent. Um, and and, you know, we, that, I, I don't know about you, but that just is a very discouraging number where I come from. I, I think voting is a, as crazy as this sounds. I think voting is a pleasure. Uh, it's more than just a right and a responsibility. I think it's a pleasure. It's It's one of the few things we get to do in society that actually... Uh, you know, sort of confirms our commitment to our democracy. And, you know, we're not asked to do it that often at the provincial level. You know, it's basically once every four years, unless it's a minority parliament. And if people ultimately decide, I hate all my choices and I'm just going to stay home, gosh, I don't know what that says, but that'll be, you know, cause for further reflection after the election's over. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see that around 75-80%. I don't know if that's going to happen in our lifetimes, but uh, this is supposed to be a change election, and usually in change elections, that increases voter support because they say, yeah, we want to be part of that movement. I, I think a lot of people are becoming more skeptical as this thing goes on. Uh, you're quite right. It does. It, it is certainly a change election, and as we saw federally in 2015, when it's a change election, that can prompt more people to come out. But we have to remember, and I think the the turnout in the last federal election was up around 70 percent so it was certainly much higher than the ontario number we have to remember that there were there were a couple things that prompted that in the last federal election number one justin trudeau caught fire so there was a whole bunch of young people who came out to vote for him uh who clearly have not yet been similarly energized by any of the options in the ontario campaign and the other thing of course was the marijuana promise the promise to uh, decriminalize and legalize uh, the sale of marijuana and that got a lot of young people coming out to vote who otherwise would not have as well. And again, there is no similar, you know, shiny bobble in the window this time to capture the uh, the hearts and minds of young people. Uh, so, you know, so we are where we are. I, I want to talk about your blog uh, from the other day, too. It's called Why sure. Party Unity Often Decides Who Wins Elections. And you, you gave a rather unique perspective, as you often do to this vote, because we tend to get wrapped up, I guess, in policy and, and personalities, and, and those are important. But as you, I think, so rightly point out in the blog, Steve, uh, party unity, I mean, you know, everybody being on the same page is a big deal. And, and actually, we've seen a, a couple of blatant examples where that's not in place and it's probably having a negative impact on those parties. It, it, there's a whole bunch of reasons why people vote. I mean, people vote because they like the party. People vote because they like the leader. People vote because they like, as we just said, the marijuana thing. There's a particular policy that people uh, take a shining to. But I think one of the most dramatically underestimated reasons why people vote for a particular party is the party looks like they've got their act together, right? They got everybody singing from the same hymn book. They look like they're a cohesive unit. And that is one thing the NDP has clearly had on its side in this election campaign. You do not hear any sniping out of the background. Uh, about the kind of campaign Andrea Horvath has run or what she's running on. Conversely, oh my goodness, I mean, the Ford campaign for the progressive conservatives, particularly in the last few days, has just been derailed by all sorts of other stuff, 
I mean, literally from the beginning, given the way that Mr. Ford won his election, right? He won fewer votes and fewer ridings than Christine Elliott, but because of the rules of the PC leadership, he ended up winning. And from that moment on, he, in essence, transformed the PC party into the Ford Nation Party. And I understand why he did that. He wanted to be surrounded by people who were loyal to him, as we saw with the previous leader, Patrick Brown. That's important. Um, but the, the effect of that was to exclude a lot of people who somehow didn't see themselves now reflected in Ford Nation. And I think about a lot of red Tories, you know, centrist Tories, uh, Tories who were unhappy at the shenanigans that took place under Patrick Brown with nomination meetings and saw Doug Ford then appoint 11 candidates in one fell swoop. And now with the revelations from yesterday, appears to have engaged in the same kind of shenanigans that Patrick Brown did with paying for nominations and signing people up who had no idea what they were signing up for. Anyway, the result of all of this has been a lot of unhappiness in the background, a lot of people uh, sniping and, and, and not singing from the same hymn book as the leader, and that has an impact. We have seen over the course of the last couple of weeks, uh, again, if the polls are to be believed, that the Ford forces have taken a big hit in popular opinion. And the NDP just keeps on going despite some of the crazy things that have emerged from their campaign. Uh, you know this candidate, Mississauga Center, uh, who had some very disparaging things to say about veterans and poppy wearing and how it, uh, you know, she didn't like it at all. And anyway, I won't go into it. There's other, another candidate who's sort of a 9-11 truther. Um, for some reason, the NDP has remained cohesive and they have not allowed uh, sniping to go on. And the result of which is uh, they look very sharp right now. And the polls are reflecting that. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, they've not been without controversy. As you know, there's a, uh, a couple of, uh, well, they're not candidates, really. There's, they're incumbents looking for re-election. And here in the Hamilton area, they've got some uh, very serious charges uh, by former employees. And, and I guess that's being dealt with. But it doesn't seem to stick. I know that, that the, you know, the Liberals and, and the PCs have both tried to make an issue of that, and it doesn't seem to resonate with people. But the stuff that's happening within the PC party uh, does. It's the one that's making headlines. And, and as you pointed out in the blog, Steve, Parties can, you know, they can implode from within. And, Absolutely. And I think there's a couple of things going on with the, with the conservatives here. And I'll go back one incarnation before that. I, I've talked to a few people in the party that are still ticked off about Patrick Brown and think notwithstanding his, his, his you know, the activities that he was accused of, that uh, they kind of liked the way the party was going. I mean, you saw the op-ed piece that uh, that Patrick Brown had in the paper yesterday that essentially said, look, I tried to make this the Bill Davis party again, and, and look at what it is now. And, and and that was a shot at Doug Ford. There's a lot of internal fighting going on in that party. There absolutely is. And it, and it really started with Doug Ford at the PC Leaders Debate, which I had the honor of hosting at TVO, yeah. uh, with, with Doug Ford saying there are no circumstances under which I would allow Patrick Brown to run for the PC party if I win. Well, right then and there, you know that a lot of people who were loyal to Brown just thought, okay, I don't have a, I don't have a place in this party anymore. So that was problematic. It also meant that, that by continuing to make allegations against Brown uh, and sort of take the fight to him, um, you know, the, the focus got diffused. I mean, Mr. Ford, um, he, he mentioned it numerous times on the campaign, but it has ended up going in a different direction. He wants to be fighting liberals and new Democrats. He doesn't want to be fighting a, a rear guard action within his own party, but he's had, he had to do that in part because he has continued to criticize Brown for the shenanigans that took, took place under his watch. The result of which is, you know, <laughs> Doug Ford says Patrick Brown left the party in a state of rot. As you point out in that op-ed piece that was in, the, I guess it was the Star the other day, mm -hmm. Brown says, well, wait a second, 
I left a party that was in first place in the polls for three straight years, whose coffers were absolutely filled to the gills with money, because he did something like 350 fundraisers over the course of a year, um, and brought in a whole bunch of multicultural candidates, the likes of which this party has never seen before. Uh, that you know, <laughs> Mr. Ford, if 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 the PC party goes down in popularity, don't look at me because it wasn't my fault. You know, the, the other thing I guess I should mention here, Bill, is that it really doesn't take much for a party to be seen as disunited. And if we go back a decade, you know, you you and I will both remember well when John Tory, who was then leading the PC party, came out with this faith-based funding. Mm-hmm. Idea absolutely uh, to level. You know, he he saw what, in his view, was an injustice of Catholics having two fully funded public education systems to choose from, and no other religion having that uh, privilege. And he decided to offer public funds to all religions that met various uh, educational criteria. One backbencher from Gray County, Bill Murdoch, popped off about it. He didn't like the idea. He told a group of reporters one day, "This is just not selling in my neck of the woods," and it started an avalanche. And Tory had to back down. He then had to say, well, we'll have a free vote. Then other MPPs, or, or I guess former MPPs in the PC party, came forward and said, yeah, it's not selling in my part of the province either. And that just took all the legs out of the PC campaign before that 2007 election. All because one maverick backbencher publicly expressed some unhappiness about party policy. That's all it takes. And the avalanche can bring you down after that. We got about a minute left here, and I want to very qu- quickly touch on what's going to be happening on Sunday. You and Farnasser, of course, are going to be moderating this debate. Uh, I, I I know that you don't want to make predictions about this, but performance is going to count in this. And and I can tell you one thing from the years that you and I have been following politics, it's awfully hard to turn momentum around. Uh, it just seems as if there's this is a boulder rolling downhill right now, and the the daunting task for Doug Ford right now is to try to get some of that momentum back. At not a whole lot of time, but the TV debate's an opportunity. It, it is the last and best opportunity for both Doug Ford and Kathleen Wynne to have their last chance to stop what looks like a Horvath juggernaut right now. You're absolutely right. So <laughs> tune in at 6.30 uh, on uh, Sunday night. Uh, all the TV channels will be having it on. Uh, I suspect your radio station yes, will be playing are. it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you are going to see Andrea Horvath in the crosshairs all night long because she's obviously got the momentum right now. And if the other two parties want to have any hope of being players in this election, they have to stop that. So that's what I would anticipate Sunday night. Looking forward to it. Steve, thanks as always for the time. Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll be listening on Sunday. Super. Thanks a lot, Bill. Take care. Steve Pakin, of course, host of The Agenda on TVO with Steve Pakin. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, As we were talking about with Steve Pakin just a couple of minutes ago, this is a, a monumental election here in the province of Ontario. Uh, And the uh, leaders' debate, which is scheduled for Sunday evening, is uh, actually, I think, going to be a a big factor in this, because there's a lot of folks right now that are still undecided as to where they're going to cast their vote. They seem to have an idea who they don't want to vote for, but uh, haven't really gotten to the other end of that yet and decided, well, where am I going to put the X? Which is why I think it matters, and and I think a lot of folks are going to be listening and watching. We will carry that uh, debate, by the way right here on CHML on Sunday evening, beginning at 6.30. Uh, one of the uh, moderators, of course, is Steve Pake, and the other is uh, Farah Nasser, of course, the uh, co-anchor on Global News at 5.30 and 6, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about maybe what we can expect. Farah, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Listen, I was just talking to Steve about this a couple of minutes ago and, and just trying to go through our past coverages and past elections. And, and I know that the, I think the analogy I used is as elections are like snowflakes, no two are alike. But this is this is just crazy this year. The twists and turns this thing have taken have just been incredible. 
You know, I, I just wonder whether there's ever been an election where it's come down to the debate like it has this time around. I mean, I think there's a lot of people, Bill, who are still thinking, oh, we're going to stay home. Uh, we really don't know which way to vote. So this is really the last chance for the leaders to to make their push. And, and uh, I have to say, I feel the weight of that in terms of, in terms of how important this debate is going to be on Sunday. Well, especially because, uh, let's face it, when the writ was dropped, and, and at that time, the, the PCs, of course, had a significant lead. I, I heard, and I'm sure you guys did, Farah, that uh, a lot of people said, why are we even bothering? It's a foregone conclusion what's going to happen here. Uh, not so much now. No, it's so true. I mean, it was it was thought, well, the Conservatives are going to take it. It's just a question, minority, majority. But now things are, are really, really shifting. And I think that's why all eyes are going to be on Sunday. I'm actually on my way. I don't know if Steve told you where he is, but we're, we have a debate uh, editorial meeting, um, a production meeting at 10, at 10 o'clock this morning. So we, we have questions where this is our chance to put the leaders in the hot seat. And uh, there's some really tough questions from the public. They're on the themes that you've been talking about on your show, um, you know, hydro, affordability, childcare, all those kind of things. But, um, but they're, you know, they're going to have to answer these really well. And, and also the communication, right? They're going to not going to have to, they're going to, they can't go in the weeds, right? They have to really get their message home and resonate with the, with uh, viewers. And Doug Ford, remember, has done that pretty well, right, with his base at least. Well, and therein lies one of the great stories in this thing about, you know, Ford Nation and, and, and you know, this juggernaut that was supposed to be happening. And, and I can remember the pollsters back in the beginning of this uh, campaign, Farah, saying just that, that, like, that supports rock solid, it's not going anywhere. But it doesn't look like it's going to grow, and, and we've pretty much seen that. I mean, he's still around that 40% mark if you, you know, take the... Uh, it conflate a lot of the polls that we're getting right now. But the concern always was, well, okay, what what are all those other folks going to do? And, and if they rally behind one of those other candidates, it could be trouble. And that appears to be what's happening. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know if Steve told you this, but he always says that the, the poll is is what people were thinking yesterday, right? So, yeah. And we've seen, I mean, we, we saw this in the American election. We've seen this time and time again, especially recently, where polls sometimes aren't giving us the results that we actually see on election day so really anything can happen you know and i think the the biggest job is for andrea Horvath. she has to not only get um you know her base to to come out and vote but she has to convince people who are undecided or who are liberal voters who are going to stay home to get out and vote and then to vote for her party so that's that's a big job it, it's a province-wide election but but let's face it and and, and every vote counts and every riding is important for it like, but we, we know that, in, especially in the last four or five elections, if they're any indicator, uh, the battleground is going to be in the 905 and the GTA. There's a, a plethora of seats that are available right now. Uh, a lot of them went liberal. It's probably not going to happen this time, and I guess that's the big question. Where are they going to go? Yeah, that's, and that's the thing. A lot of these communities, I mean, I can speak uh, for, for minority communities. Uh, like... oh, I think we just lost fire. All right, quick dropout. Okay, just uh, the joys of cell phones, I guess, depending on which area you're in at the present time. Uh, we'll try to hook up with her in just a couple of seconds. As we mentioned off the top, uh, CHML will be carrying the debate. It's going to be on most of the TV stations uh, on Sunday evening from 6.30 until 9 o'clock. And, of course, CHML will carry the uh, thing live in case you can't get in front of a TV. Make sure you've got it here, uh, 900 CHML, and uh, we'll get you hooked up with this. And uh, it's, it's going to be such a pivotal uh, debate, I think, for that very reason that people still don't quite know. And even the pollsters that are indicating now that there seems to be a huge shift over to to the NDP are suggesting that even that support, as big as that number might be getting, is not rock solid. Uh, those are people that said that's probably where I'm going to go. I voted so-and-so in the last election, probably not going to do that. 
And there's an interesting dynamic uh, about, uh, and I think Steve Pickett used the example a bit, a lot of people may just hold their nose and say, well, I'm going to vote for so-and-so. Not my biggest fan, uh, not crazy about the policies, but I sure don't like the other two. And, and that's, that's part of the situation and part of the problem that's facing right now. And the other element, too, is exactly what's going to happen with voter turnout. Uh, and that's uh, that's one of the questions that we need to ask. I think we've got uh, far back here as we uh, talk with Faranasi, who's going to be one of the moderators. Uh, the joys so of the joys of cell phones, right? Yeah, I really apologize <laughs> for that, junior viewers. Um, uh, it, it happens, but, as we, you we were, were saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny. I was I was talking and nobody was on the other end. Anyway, um, but uh, they, you know, I was, I was talking about the minority communities because there's people who are who are lifelong liberals, uh, especially you know in in places like Mississauga and Brampton, and now they're wondering. Am I going to go vote for the Liberal Party? Is it a waste of a vote, right? So, um, and then also, when you think about the 905, there's also voter apathy in a lot of places. I was in Brampton recently. We were doing a roadshow from there because that's a battleground yep. that a lot of people are going to be watching. And the voter turnout is, is lower there than it, than it is anywhere else. So, you know, that's going to be a big question. Advanced polls, I don't know if they're going to give us any indication, but that's this weekend. I got to ask you about that. I was watching that show when you were on location out there earlier this week, Farah. Uh, that's where the, a lot of this controversy seems to be swirling from, at least surrounding the PCs at that part. Is that having any impact at all on the people in that community? You know, it's funny. I think there's still people who who are who are trying to fully grasp what what this whole 407 debacle of Brampton candidates, what it all means. Um, so, uh, you know, to a lot of people, they're thinking, okay, well, something doesn't seem right. Maybe the rules were broken, but I don't know if people fully grasp the specifics, at least the people we were speaking to in Brampton. Um, and, and that's the thing. Like, communication here is key for these leaders, right? To get their message out, to, to, to say it in a way that people understand. And I think at, at the beginning, at least, I mean, we were, we were applauding or people were applauding, uh, you know, Doug Ford for being able to do that. But the question is, is he still going to be able to do that on this debate? And you remember the first debate, the one on City TV, it was, it was he was very, very nervous. So we'll yeah. see what kind of dub we, we get on Sunday night. I, I'm wondering about that because you guys have talked about this, and I mean, Alan's been on the road following some of the stuff too. So you guys have you've been there in the grassroots, and that's such a key part in this to find out how people, uh, the person on the street, is actually responding and reacting to this. And and we in the media, I guess, sometimes kind of get wrapped up in these stories, whether it's the 407 data uh, hack that that you just talked about. Uh, of course, uh, you know, did Doug Ford buy memberships, uh, which you're not supposed to do? Uh, we talked about Andrea Horvath and some of the accusations against some NDP candidates and uh, the rather derogatory remarks about Remembrance Day, etc. Uh, does that does that resonate with voters? I mean, I, we make a big deal of it in the media because I think there's those are stories that need to be told. But do you think it really has a, an impact on how people are going to vote? I, I don't know. I mean, I think that people definitely this weekend, uh, some, some say that this isn't the weekend made you for that people talk politics, but I, I think I would argue it is. I mean, I, I think a lot of people are struggling with how to vote. And then when you when you go, you know, to a barbecue or you're having dinner, or you're talking to a friend on the phone, some of these things come out. You know, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? So I think it does have an impact. But I think at the end of the day, Ontario voters are smart. I mean, it's the issues that are really going to, um, I think, going to change the game here. Because what we're noticing from the questions that came in, Bill, are, are that people find that this, this province is just not affordable, that they aren't better off, that they want to see change, that something needs to change right now, whether it's the healthcare system that needs a, a complete overhaul, according to some people, or whether it's, you know, child care and not being able to, to afford that or, or being able to go back to work or, or whatnot. So I think that these are the things that, these are the promises that people are really looking for. I don't know if the rest is noise. I mean, I think Ontario voters are pretty smart. 
And, and uh, those are the standard issues, and I'm sure those are going to come out. But as you went, and I guess you guys are going to do your production meeting in just a little bit here, Farah, so you'll get a better understanding of some of the questions that are actually going to be used in, in the discussion and in the debate. But I would imagine that one of the overarching questions for all three of them right now is, okay, you've, you've promised all this. How are you going to do it? How are you going to pay for this? Because that seems to be the one that they dodge every time somebody brings it up. Right, and and, that, and I think you know it, it's amazing that we we saw Ipsos polling that was done for Global News that showed that the majority of people want to see don't want debt. They just don't want debt. They want they want to you know not have as many programs or whatever. They just but they want to pay down this debt. They don't want their grandkids to be paying for it. And um, you know, but but then you're seeing all this support, this progressive support towards Andrea Horvath's side, right? And she's the only one who's, who's provided the numbers, albeit you know. Part of it, some will say that we're wrong. Well, she is, she's admitted that some of the numbers were miscalculated. Um, so I think that, that the debt is a real question, and you're right. Who's going to pay for it? And again, the Doug Ford, the cost of platform. We haven't seen how, how much uh, things are going to cost, but then you also wonder, is that does that matter? Does that matter to voters? Do they want to see the nitty-gritty numbers? I mean, I don't know about you. I can't wrap my head around hundreds of billions of dollars. It's just too big of a number to me. So I think that, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they spin this on debate night. I'm glad, by the way, and I was really happy to find out that you guys are going to be working together on this, both Steve and, and yourself, Farah, because you're two of the best in the biz at keeping things on track, but more importantly, uh, of holding the people that you're talking to accountable to, to for answers like this. Uh, uh, it's very difficult in a debate situation because you know that they've gone out there and they've, they've got their talking points, and that's what the message they want to get across. Uh, you guys are going to have to peel back a few layers and try to get to the to the to the bare bones of what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. It's it's a daunting task, really. It is, and you know what's interesting, Bill? Because you know I was watching a lot of American debates for preparing for this, Steve. As you know, it's done so many of these, um, and and I noticed in in the states they're really they really get in there and they and they ask ask all these questions, these pointed questions. They interrupt, but here the style is, and I've noticed that. You know, we have to, of course, hold them to time. We have to ask the tough questions. We have to represent the public, all of that. But at the end of the day, it's not my job to do Kathleen Wynne's job for her. She mm -hmm. will have an opportunity to ask Doug Ford about, about where the money's coming from or, or Andrea Horvath or whatever. So there's really, there's really a balance there that I'm still trying to wrap my head around. Um, but uh, because, you know, the, the natural instinct is to interject. And, but this isn't a job. This isn't a, sorry, an interview that we do on TV. This is very different. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see how um, you know our role, even my role. Again, we're still working everything out. Uh, it's a Sunday. We have lots of meetings up, up ahead and rehearsals and things like that. So uh, yeah, I hope I hope it goes well. And, and my my goal here, as you know, and Steve and, and all of our goal is to make sure that the viewers get as much as they can out of this. That people are not talking over each other. That the points are clear and that kind of thing. So wish us luck. It's a <laughs> it's a subtle difference. Uh, because you're absolutely right. This is not a quote-unquote interview. A moderator is a totally different job, uh, and you're mm -hmm. absolutely right. You know, too many, because uh, I watch the debates, too. I mean, that's just what we do. Uh, and, right. and you're right. Some of the ones down in the States, the, the, the moderator wants to be the star of the show, and you can't be. Exactly. This, is, this is all about extracting information from those candidates so that the people that are watching and listening can get a better idea as to which way they want to vote. And I, I know that both you and Steve uh, will probably want to bite your tongue from time to time wanting to interject, but sure. back off. It's, it's a delicate balance you have to find. Yeah, and, and this is, you talk to politicians, and I've, I've done, I've spoken to many over the years even about debates, and they all say that one thing, this is the most important moment in the campaign, and you don't want to jeopardize that, right? You don't want to, 
to, to you know, there could be a moment where these two are really um, going to go at it or three are gonna, really going to go at it, and you don't want to be the one who's kind of interjecting at that point, right? So, uh, again, we're, we're going to be listening, and, yeah, we'll be fact-checking in our head, and there's some things that we will, we will bring up. We're not just going to be houseplants sitting there, but, but we have to really also be careful. We have to find that balance together. Have you had a chance to go over some of the possible questions at this stage? I mean, you've talked about some of the key things that are coming up time and time and time again. But but anything surprising that, that somebody would like to have asked that uh, that you kind of caught you off guard and said, oh, I didn't know that was going to be a factor? <laughs> um, you know, it's funny seeing some of these questions because it's, there's definitely political parties who are submitting questions, so we have to sift through all that, uh, you know, and, and, and social interest groups. But it's yeah, come obvious. on, you're, you're, you're trying to say they're really trying to stack the deck here, Far? Come on, they, would, they wouldn't do that in an election, would they? It's funny, they're all the same questions from different email addresses. Anyway, but um, we, we I, I can't tell you the questions, obviously, yeah, but it's but the themes are the same ones that, that we keep hearing. And the questions that I don't know, so we have three from Steve and I, between the two of us, we have three questions that we've talked to other networks, it's a consortium debate, so we've had input from other networks as well in terms of these three questions. And then we have the audience questions, which are ones that viewers wrote in uh, with and listeners and that kind of thing. And then there's three that the, the leaders are going to be asking each other so those we have no idea and we're not going to find out till the night off and i am i am so curious and excited for those three questions um you'll remember the last debate uh doug ford asked uh, kathleen when how did you lose your way and she yeah. spent the whole night thinking about that question because she i think i mean i think it's fair to say it caught her off guard um and she didn't answer it the way she wanted to so those that really be, that really bugged are, her didn't it because remember, the next day she actually called a press conference to try to explain her answer and say, this is what I should have said. That, that was bizarre. It's just another one of these weird things that happened in this election. Absolutely. Because I think, I mean, for her, she's, a, she's such an activist at heart, and I think that hit her in the core. You know, how did you lose your way? I think that really, that, but it, look, the war rooms right now are planning those questions. Um, you know, you, you can, the liberals might, might not be doing well in the polls, but some say their war room is dominating, so she might have a really good question back to Doug Ford. Uh, it's, it's live TV. It's must-see TV, um, and I can't wait to watch, uh, and I can't wait to be part of it. Well, it's, it's going to be very exciting because, like I say, there's so many people right now that just don't know which way they want to go. Uh, they know where they don't want to go, but, uh, you know, where am I going to mark the X? Uh, and, and, and I think this is why this matters a lot. I don't know that a whole lot of people watch the CP24 debate. I mean, it was early in the campaign. It was, uh, it was late afternoon. Uh, nobody saw the Perry Sound thing. I mean, you know, for, for, for that rationale. This is really the one and only opportunity that people are going to have an opportunity to actually make a judgment as to who they want to see as the next premier here. Yeah, and you know, I was seeing to a lot of um, political pundits and insiders, and I said, do, they, do people change their mind after the debate? Is it something that they, and they say, it, it, a lot of people were telling me, it, set, it actually sets the course. So how, what they think in the debate, I mean, maybe they'll change their mind, but it's a real base for them, right? Um, and it's the last time they're really paying attention to the leaders in terms of long-form questions. Yes, you'll see snippets here and there and that kind of thing, but this is really their opportunity to, to present their question or to answer their question the way they want, and it's also how they present themselves, right? So that's another thing to watch. It's, it's going to be that balance, I guess, for the candidates, isn't it, Far between personality and, and platform. I mean, we want details, but we, I, let's face it, we're judging them too, aren't we? I, you know, how do they answer that? What kind of body language? I mean, those things matter to people. Absolutely, absolutely. Especially, I mean, uh, with, with the, the, the messaging, right? I mean, I, I don't know whether the over-explaining, um, the justifying, is that going to work? Is it going to be the, the crystal clear messages but with no um, you know, evidence to support them? Wh how, how is it going to resonate with voters? What is going to resonate with voters? And, you know, 
it's, it's a real desperate time for, for two of these leaders. If Kathleen Wynn's in this position she's never been in before. Doug Ford is slipping. You know, he didn't think that was going to happen. And Andrea Horvath finds herself, you know, with that grin she always has during during these debates. It's going to be even bigger, I'm sure, this time because, uh, you know, she's she's leading now in the polls. And, and I was watching the debate from the last election with Jim Hudak, and she was in a very different position. She was really reading her notes. She was, I mean, it was kind of... Uh, like she was almost shut out even with Kathleen Wynne's body language. She was in the middle because she was the third place party. Well, no more. Um, so it's, yeah, definitely going to be one to watch. 6.30 uh, on uh, Global, of course, and all of the other networks, uh, TV stations around here. And, of course, we'll have it right here on 900 CHML. Uh, you got to get to a meeting. Uh, good luck with that. And good do, luck. I do. I'm funny parking. Good Thank luck on Sunday. So really appreciate Great Thank talking you. with you, Farah. Take care now. Bye-bye. Nasser, of course, uh, co-anchor on Global News 5.30 and 6. And she and uh, Steve Pakin are going to be the two moderators. And you got a little idea there from uh, Farah's description as to how the uh, the process is going to work on Sunday, that both Steve and Farah will have three questions each, uh, and then the candidates are going to be asking each other questions. And uh, it's uh, it's going to be interesting, and it's important. Make sure you tune in, 900CHML. If you want to find out exactly where your vote's going to go on June 7th, uh, you've got to watch that debate and get as much information as you can about that. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday, U.S. President Donald Trump canceled the upcoming summit between uh, himself and uh, North Korean leader uh, Kim Jong-un. I got to tell you, a lot of experts uh, that have looked at this uh, probably agree on one thing, that it's probably the right thing to do to cancel it. But the reason why uh, it has canceled, it's got a lot of folks saying, well, it's it's because Trump screwed this thing up right from the get-go. Uh, what are the implications of this? Well, joining us to talk about this is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa. Uh, Elliot, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again. Good morning, Bill. Were you surprised by the decision? Surprised, yes, but not shocked. <laughs> the, the surprise was that it was very clear that both of these parties wished to have a summit. Both sides clearly wanted to have a summit meeting, but it was also clear to, to me and I think others that they had goals which were not compatible with each other. So they had conflicting goals but wanted to summit anyway, and that squaring that circle seems to uh, at least in part have been the reason for this cancellation. It became clearer and clearer that really they had different reasons for wanting to sit down while they both wanted to sit down. Well, I got the sense, and, and I think a lot of people were, I guess it was conjecture at this stage, that the, the reason that North Korea would be interested in this because it would legitimize that, that regime and say, look, at, we're, we're rubbing shoulders here with the President of the United States. That's never happened before. Yes, it was in the interest of the North Koreans. Well, let's, let's back up a little. It's only been a few months that we were facing a global nuclear crisis, uh, a nuclear game of chicken, and it looked very, very serious. Suddenly, North Korea changed its tune and went on a charm offensive at the time of the Olympics, which they continued to to broaden and deepen leading up to this uh, offer of of a summit by North Korea and the unexpected immediate response by the President of the United States, who sees himself as a transformative figure, a different kind of a figure and a great negotiator. So we found ourselves with a summit that perhaps surprised each of them but each of them wanted to have this, to go back to that. North Korea was achieving something extraordinary, sitting down as a nuclear equal with the United States. This has been a, a long, elusive goal, and it's a great uh, achievement for the North. At the same time, 
the visions of a Nobel Prize seem to be dancing in the in the mind of the U.S. president. Well, that, and that started, you, you're right, within hours of the announcement. It was actually Trump himself that made the announcement. Uh, you, usually these things, I guess, are done through the State Department, but he, uh, as we were told, just walked into the press room at the White House that one afternoon and said, oh, but, you know, I'm going to go to North Korea, we're going to have a meeting, and they're just, what? <laughs> uh, with no agenda, no idea. I mean, but but you're right, the, the, the language, Elliot, from both sides, right off the bat, was in, in Congress. I mean, Trump was talking about total de- de- demilitarization, uh, getting rid of the nuclear arsenal. You never heard any of that kind of talk from North Korea, so it really didn't surprise anybody that, that, that Kim was going to say, I'm not doing that. North Korea does use the term denuclearization. They have for a very long time. But what it means to them compared to what it means to the Trump administration and the timing of it uh, really were quite different. Yes, complete, verifiable, uh, uh, you can't replace it, denuclearization, irreversible denuclearization. Now, up front, before we go any farther, seemed to be the American position. It was also the Bush uh, administration position earlier, uh, Bush too. So what we had at the outset was the term denuclearization being used, but it was clear to those of us who have been following this that they were really talking about two different things. Well, and and again, John Bolton, of course, has been the advisor. We all know that he is rather hawkish when it comes to these sorts of things. Uh, may have just made a bad situation worse, though, when he talked about that that denuclearization and said, let's use the Libyan model. Uh, now, that's that's got to send chills down Kim's back because, I mean, Gaddafi gave up his nuclear weapons, did get rid of all of them. Uh, he was dead within a couple of months after that. I mean, th- there was insurrection in the country. He was eventually killed. And, 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 and I'm sure Kim's looking at that and saying, that's not the goal here, so I'm not going to do this. I mean, it, it just seemed as if uh, as Bolton sticking his nose in and using phraseology like this, which he knew was, was probably going to add fuel to the fire here. Uh, you got to wonder about his motives. We can wonder indeed. February 28th, when he was a commentator on Fox and, and a, a general uh, uh, writer of op-eds, he wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal saying, when he was still, in a sense, a civilian, <laughs> not part of the administration, this is the basis for legitimacy for bombing preemptively North Korea. He laid the ground for a preemptive military strike in an a op-ed, and days later he was a member of the administration. So the question was raised in my mind as soon as he started to talk about the Libya option. Was he actually trying to sab- – does he have an agenda? Was he trying to sabotage this summit so that he could go back to his own preferred agenda, which is regime change through military force? That was, um, if not his intention, as you just pointed out, Bill, it certainly had the impact of affecting the uh, atmosphere around the possibility of a successful summit because, yes, remember NATO led an intervention in, in the case of Libya. So the term the Libya model to him, to be fair to him, technically was, well, you can have the Libya model, meaning the West will come in uh, on a peaceful basis, We'll give you relief from all sanctions. You'll get to join the, the world. You'll get economic benefit. And by the way, you don't really have a nuclear program. You're just developing it. So get out of that, and you'll join the world. And Gaddafi bought that uh, later, uh, sometime later, actually. Uh, the, the NATO intervention led to the fall of the regime and his eventual murder uh, by his own people. So which Libya model do you think <laughs> Kim Jong-un heard about? And... Later, this is perhaps 
we can only speculate on this, but Mike Pence just repeated that Libya model uh, version, combining the two, apparently, in his own mind, on Fox News. Are they working together, Bolton and Pence? Was Pence echoing what he thought the American president was saying and misunderstood it? So Trump actually disavowed Bolton, saying, nah, the Libya model isn't what we're after, but we'll use it if necessary, meaning we'll decimate you. So it's, it looks like this is a gang that can't shoot straight or that certainly are not on the same page. Well, I, I guess one of the elementary things about this whole discussion, and if you look at a broader context here, Elliot, is is Trump obviously fancies himself as the deal maker? I mean, that was the book, right? The art of the deal, and right. and I guess he figures I'm going to parlay that into the White House, and and I'm going to be the guy that's going to make all these wonderful deals. Well, uh, it didn't work with NATO. I mean, Angela Merkel and others have basically said, look, we're going to have to get along without the United States because we can't deal with this guy. Uh, it's certainly not working with NAFTA, and it's not working with North Korea. So uh, I, I don't know if it's playing to his narcissism or what that he can just walk in here and be the guy that's going to bring everybody together, but it's not happening. He has a very high confidence in his deal-making ability. I think that's fair to say. All right, that's a nicer way to put it. <laughs> so uh, he believes that he's different from the American presidents that preceded him, including the Republicans who preceded him, that he would get things done that they couldn't. Also, remember, he's promised these things to his base, that I'm going to be different, I'm going to be a different kind of a president, I'm a great deal-maker, and I'm going to look out for America. And... Uh, a lot of the things we've seen him do actually were promises made during the campaign. Withdrawal from the Paris Accord, et cetera, et cetera. Or the Iran deal, which is one we should come back to in this context right now, et cetera. There was no let's make peace with North Korea as part of the, uh, of the campaign. So he's not just ticking a box here, but he is ticking that box saying, I'm, the, I'm different. And I'm going to deliver for America in a way that no other president can do. Yeah, well, he's very much obviously concerned about his own legacy, and, and, and the, the way in which he's going about that is rather bizarre. But I, I'm just going over the letter that he sent to, to Kim about right. this, Ellie, and it's rather, it's, well, first of all, the language in it. I, this is a guy that seems to speak and write at about a grade two level, but which is a little, uh, I, I guess, unrattling for an awful lot of people. Uh, but he accuses Kim here of saying of, uh, of tremendous anger and open hostility displayed at your recent statement. The recent statement was that he wasn't going to get rid of all his weapons. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it wasn't a threat. He wasn't saying I was going to use them on anything. But it's it's interesting how Trump turns things around and basically says, we're doing this because it's your fault. Well, let's look at the timing on this, which I think has not been examined uh, carefully enough. The timing of this was just after the, North, uh, the South Korean president, who's invested. Remember, as this crisis was building and building to a real dangerous uh, possible breaking point, a couple of things happened. One was... South Korea opened, opened the way for a diplomatic uh, way out, a solution. If anybody's looking for diplomacy, we've got it. And sure enough, North Korea took that step. China uh, is a big, big factor here because China agreed to actually sign on to sanctions and keep them. So uh, that the, the combined pressure of those two, uh, really, I think, uh, Kim has his own reasons. He wanted to perhaps out of a nuclear confrontation at that point. But... That has led to where we are now. Why the two days after, I mean immediately after, the president of South Korea is sitting with the American president talking about the timing and the content of this summit, did he suddenly, you know, did Trump suddenly walk out and say we're not going to do it? So something seemed to have happened 
in the very few hours, really, between, unless Trump was just stringing Moon along and planned to do this anyway, but it looks impulsive, that or that something decisive came along. And apparently, the Belichol statements, you know, who started all this? Well, you know, Bolton said this, and then North Korea changed its tone, and then that change of tone led to the kind of statements that Trump re- rejected and reacted to. Apparently, we're hearing now, it's when North Korea called the vice president of the United States a political dummy that <laughs> and threatened, you know, you know we've got nukes. Do you, would you rather talk to us than face us in a nuclear confrontation? That apparently was a tipping point. Well, and, and obviously he responded in kind in the letter here saying, uh, you know, you, you talk about your nuclear capabilities. Ours yes. are so massive and powerful that I right. pray to God that we'll never have to be used. Uh, so in other words, it sounds like we're back to square one here, Elliot. It's, uh, I got mine pointed at you, and you got yours pointed at me. Well, it, it, it square one in more than one way because uh, it sounds like impetuousness and peak and personality seems to be a factor in diplomacy here. Um, you'll remember that Hillary Clinton had that famous line in her campaign, a man you can provoke with a tweet is one you cannot trust with a nuclear button. It was a very effective line. And over back to that point, where did North Korea, thinking they were reacting to Bolton, <laughs> remember, they, they named him by name in their response, mm-hmm. uh, did that in turn trigger this kind of response by, by Trump? So are we back to square one? Both sides have said, North Korea now responding, both sides have now said, well, really, we would still like to have this meeting if we can just find a way to get beyond this immediate little disagreement we have. So both sides are laying the path for a possible summit, even, according to Trump, even the original date or some date down the road. So right now, the two sides publicly are saying we still would prefer negotiation the key to all of this, Bill, as usual, is China. And we're not getting either the information nor is the attention being put there to the degree that's necessary. If China, which made the decision that it really did not like the building of a nuclear crisis and then did enforce the sanctions, uh, they, in effect, delivered Kim to the table. He had his own reasons as well, in addition. What is their position today? Publicly, they're saying... We want calm, and we think negotiations are good. Will they continue, as Donald Trump has said, oh, maximum pressure is now going to be put back on. Maximum pressure is impossible without Chinese cooperation on the ground in practice. And Russia is a factor because they, too, if they would like to make mischief, can back away from maximum pressure. They could try to take advantage of this. So we're into the situation where, once again, back to square one in this sense, China's intentions and actions matter. But realistically, Elliot, if, if the goal here from the United States standpoint is, is like you say, to, to decimate that nuclear program and, and get rid of the nukes altogether, uh, Kim's never going to agree to that. I mean, because I, he obviously has the sense that, look, for me to stay in power, I need to have that. And for me to be respected, and if that's not even the right word, but at least to be a player on the world stage, I need that. In other words, I was a nobody until I started firing missiles into the ocean. Now they're paying attention. He's not going to give that up. Well, particularly if you keep saying to him, Libya, Libya, Libya. Exactly. Uh, so that it's not a paranoid fantasy by the North when America has, uh, with South Korea and other allies, Japan included, 
incredible military uh, exercises. I mean, these are potent, potent exercises, which were just held, which looked to the to the uh, North Koreans as a potential invasion. You know, if you if if you don't give up your nukes, we're going to invade you. Well, if we do give up our nukes, <laughs> that's our only guarantee we can survive. So there was never going to be what the Americans seemed to want: complete denuclearization prior to negotiations. There was some thought that the uh, North Koreans would do a reciprocal tit-for-tat lowering of the temperature, giving up some of their uh, what they have in exchange for uh, benefits to them. And the United States did say some important things. We guarantee your security, said Trump. Well, how do you guarantee security if you also are having these exercises, having your senior people talking about Libya? So it was highly unlikely that the term denuclearization meant the same thing, let's put it gently, in North Korea as in Washington. Yeah, well, that one phrase, we guarantee your safety and security, isn't that what Tessio said to Michael Corleone in The Godfather? <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, he's, he's going to look at that with, I think, a, little, a grain of salt. Uh, where does this go? I mean, you know, they're, they're, yeah, we want to meet. Well, you know, he wants to meet because he wants a photo op with Donald Trump. But if let's face it, is there even a, a rationale for a summit if, if denuclearization is going to be off the table? Because that's a pretty, pretty big gap to try to try to build a bridge across at this stage. Well, I take a, I come at it from kind of a nuclear absolutist position. We need a less nuclear world rather than a more nuclear world. We need a safer world rather than a more dangerous world. We now have a situation where the United States has pulled out of the arrangement with Iran, which, whatever its flaws, and I had a lot of critiques of them, did put a stop to what was a clear, early, and quick march to a nuclear program there. And now the possibility of defusing a nuclear crisis with North Korea through a summit has also been taken off the table. So we seem to be heading toward in the wrong direction on the nuclear front. That is, both Iran, possibly, and North Korea, almost certainly, have incentives now to resume uh, a path to nuclear standoff, nuclear protection, in their view, but from the rest of the world, a nuclear danger. So again, it, I, I like the idea of the summit with all of the... Um, question marks I have about it. It's better to do that and push back a possible nuclear confrontation and try to find a way to deal with that in a way that all the parties can live with, including North Korea, than to revert to where, as you put it, back to where we were, an eyeball-to-eyeball game of nuclear chicken. It's bizarre, but that's Donald Trump we're dealing with and Kim Jong-un, so I guess we shouldn't have expected anything else. Elliot, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Elliot Tepper, of course, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.